You know, we're in a journey through the Gospel according to Luke, and we're just walking slowly, passage by passage, and probably around the start of the year, we'll actually jump back into our study of the Psalms. You know, we're in a, what I'm calling a mixtape sermon series, multi-year series, where we're going to walk through the whole book of Psalms and the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And I, I think that'll be somewhere around 15 years. So uh, just settle in. It'll be great. We'll learn a lot together. So today we walk into this passage in the Gospel according to Luke that is unique to Luke. No other Gospel account gives this record of Jesus. This is that record of Jesus that tells us really the only thing we know about his childhood. This is that moment where Jesus is in the temple, a 12-year-old boy in the temple, uh, debating, discussing with the religious leaders of the day, right there in Jerusalem. And you might wonder, why this account? I tend to think because most of Jesus' childhood was actually quite ordinary. I don't think he was doing miracles to impress his friends. I don't think he was showing how he could do amazing math problems and just be the popular kid. Like, I think Jesus lived a pretty ordinary life, but there was this moment in his life where this thing happened and it stood out. And over the years, they would, they would think on and refer back to this event. And so it kind of caught, it caught in the imagination, in the memory of his family. And as Luke, you know, was setting about to make a... Uh, a, a reliable account of the life of Jesus, this thing kept coming out as he talked to people along the way, and he includes it in his record. No other gospel writer does. And I think what we'll find is not only does he, does he include it, I think because, because this is an important moment in the life of Jesus, but for Luke, it tells us something about Jesus. Actually, it's going to reveal two key things about Jesus. And those two things are going to have something to say about your life and my life today. Man, there's some application that comes right out of this passage. Looking forward to it. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 2. We're in Luke 2. We're right at the end. We're going to pick up with verse 40. So we like we read verse 40 last week, but we'll do a little overlap. We'll read it again because it really is part of the larger passage uh, that ends this chapter. Luke 2, verse 40. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. And the child, that's Jesus, the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then they went down to Nazareth with them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
Well, you know, in every passage we have studied, there is so much we could do in this passage. We literally could take three weeks and walk through this passage and just till the ground on this on, on these verses and come away with some great insights about God and how to live right here. But we're not going to do that every week. We're not going to take three weeks to do uh, any one passage. So we're just going to pull out two key things out of this passage. And the first thing I want to highlight, because Luke highlights uh, this, he bookends this passage. So if, you, if you're looking at the passage, he bookends it with verse 40 and 52. And you've got to know what's going on, on the book, within the bookends. Take a look. I've just pulled them out for us up on the screen. So verse 40, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was on him. Key there is he grew. And what was he growing in? He was growing in wisdom. And his body's growing. His mind's growing. Verse 52, he ends the passage, this section, by saying, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Twice here, bookending the story of Jesus, this 12-year-old in the temple, bookends it by telling us Jesus grew. Okay, it's very important now. Because what Luke is going to highlight here is something that we've seen him beginning to highlight throughout his record at this point. And that is, he's telling us something about the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now, you're probably pretty familiar with the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's the thing we celebrate at Christmas every year. God come in flesh. Messiah born as a baby. Like, this is the Christmas story. But there's so much here in the doctrine of the Incarnation, we're going to have to unpack it. Because right here in these two bookends, there's an insight for us. And there's actually a teaching about Christ that the church is going to ultimately begin to explore and nail down in the centuries after this was written. So what is this doctrine of the Incarnation? If you just had to maybe go a little beyond the Christmas story... Here's one definition. I'm going to put it up here. Here's just one definition of the doctrine of the Incarnation. God became flesh. He assumed a human nature and became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We're tracking. Like, that all seems a bit uh, fairly reasonable there. And in some ways, it just seems like, well, that's pretty easy. Like, we've, we've, maybe you've been hearing this your whole life. That God the Son became flesh. He assumed human nature. But man, there was nothing easy about that as this doctrine goes out into the world part of the gospel message. There was a lot of debate. Exactly how did that work? How does God become man? What is all that? How does all that work on the insides? Like, when you think about the way Jesus was put together, how did all that get pieced, pieced together? Like, like uh, was it that God took on a human body, but really his mind was still divine? That is, that Jesus still knew everything, but had a human body. That was one popular teaching in the centuries after the church began in that first century. It was called Apollinarianism. It was a popular doctrine, this idea that, that actually God took on flesh. like So Jesus took on a body like you and me. But he didn't take on fully the human mind. He was logos. He was reason. He was the divine mind. And so God took on a physical body like your body and mine with all of its limitations and everything that goes along with having a body. He got hungry. He got tired. He sweat. 
He had to use the bathroom. All the things that a human body does, Jesus had that. But he had a divine mind. And so he, had, he was omniscient. He was all-knowing. That's how Jesus could look in and know a person's thoughts because he had a divine mind. Well, eventually the church takes on this doctrine and actually calls it heresy. That this is not the way Jesus was put together. Actually, the church eventually nails down uh, this particular understanding of the doctrine of the Incarnation that we still hold today. Anyone that's part of Orthodox, the historic Orthodox Christian faith, are going to hold to this. It is that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Fully God. Fully human. It's very, very important to grab the fully human part. Because having a physical body is part of what it means to be human. But, uh, but Jesus also had a human mind. Which means he had a limited mind. Okay. One commentator really spells this out. So it's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I want you to see, I want you to see how he says it, because he's going to say it better than me. I could go another ten minutes and try to explain it to you, or I could just read you a 30-second quote. Here we go. Like his body, the mind of Christ had to develop. He was completely subject to the ordinary laws of physical and intellectual development. He had a human mind subject to all the same laws of perception, memory, logic, and development as our own. He observed, and he learned, and he remembered, and he applied. Apart, to note this, apart from special revelation by the Spirit, Jesus did not know anything that was outside of his experience or beyond the capacity of a human mind at that age to know. God the Son took on the intellectual as well as the physical limitations of our humanity, yet without sin. This is part of what He suffered for our sin. I love the insight because it really helps us dig deeper into this doctrine that is so important for us. And we see it play out in other passages in the New Testament. This, these two verses, bookending this passage, that Jesus grew and even grew in wisdom, it's going to, eventually, Christians are going to pick up on that, and they're going to say something very important about exactly what Jesus did when He came to earth. Take a look. Paul says it this way. First, uh, Philippians 2, 6-7. Many of you probably know this passage, but I want you now to, to frame it in light of Luke 2, verse 40 and 52. Paul wrote this. Christ Jesus, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a certain servant being made in human likeness. And what was part of that human likeness? It was that He had to develop intellectually. So when Jesus was an infant, he did not know he was the Son of God. When he was a toddler, just learning to walk, he wasn't walking around ready to turn stones into bread. He, didn't, he probably didn't know who he was. There was a moment where Jesus couldn't even talk. There was a moment when Jesus got tired and cried. There was a moment when Jesus did not know Everything there was to know because he had a human intellect. He had to go to school to learn math. He had to go to school to study science. He, he did not know all things. 
in becoming nothing, being made in the likeness of a human being, he did not exercise all of his divine attributes. Oh, he was still divine, but he laid aside his omniscience, the exercise of his omniscience, so that he may become like us and suffer, so that we may find life. Part of his suffering was not just not just his bleeding or the pain in his human body, he also had to develop intellectually. He also was limited in the human mind. So a key part of what it means for Jesus to be fully human. Because I actually think most of us walk around thinking Jesus just knew everything. He just happened to have a human body. He took on the whole of a human being, even his limited intellect. There's another passage that says it this way. The Hebrew writer says this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that would be me and you, we have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity. For the reason he had to be made like them, fully human, do you see this? Fully human in every way. That means he had to learn things. He was fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might take, make an atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus saves all of you. Like every part of you. Everything Jesus assumed, that is, everything he became, he saves. Does that make sense? Like, so, so when he became human, he saves every part of a human. And that means not just one day your body will be resurrected, your mind will be made new. Every part of us is saved because he became like us in every way. If Jesus had a divine mind, but just a human body, then he did not assume every part of our humanity. And therefore, there's still this piece out here that did not get taken up in salvation. No. The doctrine of the Incarnation... And the church has affirmed this for centuries. And we are seeing it begin to be laid out by Luke in verse 40 and 52. He grew in wisdom. Every part of our humanity was taken up by Christ. And we're going to see that play out as we move forward in the Gospel of Luke. But it's so important. Right here in those two verses, almost behind the scenes, Luke is trying to teach us something very important about the Incarnation. That Jesus took on every part of our humanity. Because every part of our humanity will be saved. Actually, is saved in Christ. Okay. That's the incarnation. And man, there's some application on that. But you've got to hold with me. i got one more thing i got to share. And, but we're coming back. And Netflix is going to have something to do with it. If I can't get your attention that way, then I give up. Alright, here we go. How are we going to make verse 40 and 52 say something about Netflix? You just wait. I'm a magician with words. Here we go. Second point, second thing I want to highlight is that in this account, I don't know if you realize, this is the first time Jesus talks. That we have on record Jesus talking. Right here. At 12 years old, these are the first recorded words of Jesus. Right here in this passage. And what does he say? He says, what did you expect? He says this, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Those are the first words of Jesus. Now, let's be honest. If you've ever known a 12-year-old, and you hear the 12-year-old say, didn't you know? 
How are you hearing that? I'm hearing that with a, with a, followed by a punishment. That's what I'm hearing that with. Like, okay, well, you don't need to say anything else. Give me your phone. Like, that's it. Like, that's where we are. Didn't you know? I hear that with sarcasm. I hear that with attitude. But Jesus wasn't your ordinary 12-year-old. This is a 12-year-old without sin. So if anybody was going to be able to say it this way, without sin, without attitude, it's Jesus. And actually, that's exactly what we have going on here. Because something Luke's going to do throughout his gospel, and we see this play out in other gospel accounts, is that here we see Jesus for the first time, not just the first time he speaks, but we see Luke highlighting by picking these words, by inspiration, Luke's picking these words, we see the special relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Do you see the high, how highlighted that is here for, for Luke? He's highlighting there's a special relationship between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. And that's the thing that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Actually, I don't think there's any attitude here. I don't think, I don't think Jesus is standing here saying, you knew who I was. How are you so dense? Get it together, Mom and Dad. You knew I'd be here. No, I actually think this is coming from a very sincere place. Like, he's realizing this special relationship he has with God the Father. Remember, he's developing. He's growing. He's getting to know God the Father, his Father from eternity. But in his limitations, he's now learning about this deep relationship he has with his Father. And it just seems to be the most natural thing in the world that he would be where his Father is. And so this one commentator says it this way. Jesus said it as if it were the most natural thing in the world. If the temple was God's house, then it was his father's house because he knew that God was his father. This, this isn't, this is, there's not an attitude. This isn't a, a statement freighted with attitude or sarcasm. It really is a sincere question from Jesus. Didn't you know I'd be here? Like, you, you know that he is my father in heaven. You brought me to Jerusalem. You knew I'd be here. This relationship between God the Father and God the Son is something that is woven into the rest of the record of the life of Jesus. It's so important. So when Jesus knows something, when Jesus knows something that no one else could know, I don't think it's because Jesus just has this amazing divine mind, just kind of born with this like brilliance. I think it's because God the Father is revealing things to him. Because of this deep relationship him and the Father have as he walks through his earthly ministry. And actually, when he comes on the scene, like, and he's going to go around preaching good news as he begins to make his way eventually back to Jerusalem to go to the cross. As he begins that public ministry, the Father is at the center of that beginning. Take a look. This is what Luke will write. Luke. Luke, the one that's highlighting the relationship in chapter 2, just a few verses later, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, when all the people were being baptized, well, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was open. Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You see, I think we walk around thinking that, well, Jesus just knew that. Now, I think this was actually a very special moment for Jesus where it is highlighting that God the Father will be with Him, God the Son, particularly as God the Son does the will of God the Father. And Jesus is learning through His obedience how to obey God the Father, even in His limitations, fully God, fully human, God the Son. 
And so you just want to, I just got to show you this. This is one of those things we do together sometimes where I just like line up a long list of scriptures so that you can see this point. It's a little bit of a tour de force. And if you get to the point where like, okay, I get it. That's where I'm, I'm hoping you get to that point. Like, okay, really? Another one? Yes, another one. Lots of Bible to get this point across. Luke chapter 5, look at what Jesus will say. Jesus gave them this answer, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but who? But the one who sent me. I am about the business of pleasing my Father. That's what I'm about. I listen to my Father's voice. I do what my Father tells me to do. I am in a special relationship with doing the will of my Father in Heaven. And that's been the way our relationship has been from eternity. And now the Son here, fully God, fully human, even in all of His limitations, is learning what it means to fully obey the Father in all things. John 6, he says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Not my will, His will. This is all about, I follow the way of my Father. And then, chapter 8, he says this, John 8, 28-29, So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing out of my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The One who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. You know where all this is, we see all of this starting to happen, right? It starts to happen back in Jerusalem when a 12-year-old boy starts to realize that he is something special. He is fully human, but without sin. And somehow God the Father is revealing this relationship to him. And he goes to Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. And he just has to be with his father. And he's sitting here debating and discussing with the religious leaders. But he's going to be in his father's house. Because he is God the Son. And he's, he's beginning to realize all of this. And you can imagine the weight and the, and the excitement and all that that would include as you, as you begin to, as he began to learn and realize who he was and who his father was. So that fast forward now, 20 years, it's the most natural thing for Jesus to only do the things that the father tells him to do. That he is just, he, he's been doing this for so long. He is so well trained his whole life. At least beginning at the age of 12, it's been about doing his father's will. It's the most natural thing for him. And so when he gets to that point in his life, when he gets up to that point in his life where the ultimate will of the father is to bring salvation to the world, you know the father has sent the son into the world to die for the sins of the world. He's going to save his people. And you know that's going to, that's going to, that's going to draw all the way to a point. It would draw to that night where he was betrayed. And you remember he was in a garden crying out to his father. You remember what he was saying. God, if this, God the Father, if this cup could pass me, like if I didn't have to do this, I'd be fine. But not my will, your will be done. I just want you to note this is how Luke records it. Remember, this, these, some of these things get tracked all the way through the gospel. Uh, oh no, oh, there we go. The, 
Luke 22, verse 41 through 42, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. That's his disciples. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Man, I long to be able to say that in a moment of crisis. When you're hit with a, a terminal diagnosis, when your family's breaking up, when you're being called to suffer in, in a particular way, when life just isn't going the way you thought it would go, I want to be the kind of person where I can say, not my will, your will be done. Man, how do you get there? Well, here's the insight. I'm hoping we got this next one, not application yet. There it is. When the time came for Jesus to die for our sins, He said to His Father what He had been saying with His whole life. Thy will be done. That starts back at age 12. How do we get to Him in the garden saying, Your will be done? Not my will, your will. This doesn't just magically appear out of nowhere. He'd been learning to say that with his whole life, at least as early as 12 years old. And what he had been practicing since 12 years old, he does naturally in the garden. It doesn't mean it wasn't difficult, but he never forsakes his father. And he goes all the way to the cross because that's the will of the father. Man. That's what I want. So there are two things, two application points out of this. Two things. So again, we've kind of we've we've kind of explored the the doctrine of the incarnation and and what that has to say to us, and and we've looked at this special relationship with, between God the Son and God the Father. And I think there are two applications, uh, maybe a bit separate. So uh, whichever one hits you, great. Maybe both. I don't know. I'm going to say one of them, uh, or you're just you're asleep. Here we go. Here is. Application, first application is this. I think it's so important for us to realize. We are limited creatures, and that will never change. Jesus. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus was limited. In assuming every part of our humanity, part of that was our limitation limitations, particularly our mental limitations, but even your body, your bodily limitations. And so what I think we need to just, just grab onto and remember is that we are limited. You can't do everything you want to do. Now, you who are older, your bodies have taught you that, right? I've talked to many of you. You wake up in the morning and you don't move as, as spry or as... as um, as quickly as you uh, you once once could, and your body is constantly reminding you, you are limited. But one of I think the great challenges in our day is not to recognize the limitations of your body. I think it's to recognize the limitations of the mind. There is a multi-trillion-dollar industry out there trying to sell you the idea that there is no limit to what you can consume. If, if you like it, then consume it, particularly with digital technology, particularly with social media and with streaming platforms. Do you, I just, I'm just wondering, do you ever feel overwhelmed with the amount of shows available to you on any streaming platform? Like, every time you turn it on, there's something new, 
and you like, and then you they ask you to like thumb something up or save it over here. How often do you ever go back and watch all your DVR shows? There's no way. But they constantly have us giving us new stuff in front of us because the the promise is that you can watch as much as you want. There's no limit. We actually put a word alongside it now. We actually like say it. We say it like with with a positive spin. We we talk about binging stuff like like as if that's a real good thing. Like I'm not I'm not. I mean, there's no judgment here. If you walk away going, man, he's he like convicted me. That's not my point. Like binge away. Go watch. Go go watch your Hallmark videos over and over and over and over. You Hallmark people, I get it. Um, okay. Yeah, okay, we even have people in the balcony raising their hands. Okay, I can't get an amen on the incarnation, but I say Hallmark movies, and I'm like, man, I've got you. All right, so, it's Christmas time, too, and I know there are suckers out there um, for the Hallmark movies. I'm so sorry, I digress. But if you have that feeling that you're constantly being told, do more, do more, do more, break, break the limits, it's not just a feeling. Just this week, I read an article out of Bloomberg Business Week. It was talking about how Netflix actually has to, is having to change their business model. Because now there are so many other streaming services, they've got to figure out a way, a way to catch the rest of the market for streaming services. Here's a quote from the article. Netflix's primary challenge is to capture as much viewership as possible. That's why, while looking for ways to limit costs, Netflix will continue to churn out more original programming than any company in modern Hollywood history. It releases seven to 800 titles a year, collectively producing the most movies, animation, stand-up comedy, documentaries, reality TV, and scripted TV of any network, maintaining quality with that kind of output is almost impossible. But the Netflix CEO and his team say quantity is key to signing up more subscribers. So if you feel overwhelmed or like there's more content than there's ever been, it's because literally there is. Just Netflix has given you seven to 800 new titles every year. You can't watch all that. You can't watch all that. So here's my point. I think the incarnation is a wake-up call. You are a limited human being. Jesus assumed those limitations, and he suffered in that way. So here's just a reminder. When you start to get overwhelmed with all the content out there, or that you could just look at the next movie, the next post, it may be helpful to just put down your phone. Just put down your phone, or turn off the TV. Do something that recognizes you are a limited human being, and you can't watch, read, listen to, or look at everything you want to look at because you're limited. Jesus came into those limitations. Part of being human is to recognize you are limited. So let the incarnation tell you today, just turn it off. Just turn it off. Or just watch five episodes. Don't go six, seven, eight. You get the point, right? We're limited. So like... They live into those limitations. This is challenging for me, too. Because you know who's not going to recognize your limitations? Netflix. They're going to keep pumping out 700 to 800 titles. You can't do that. You're human. And I am, too. Last one here. It's the second point. 
the only way to become a person who naturally and joyfully submits to God's will is to do it today. And I don't, like, I'm not being metaphorical. I mean, literally. October 30th, right now, at 1048, this is God's will for you. This is where you are. This is where you will find God. And so you submit to God's will today. At 5 o'clock today, whatever your day looks like, God is taking care of things. Submit to God's will today. And you know what's going to happen when you learn to do that today? And then tomorrow becomes today, and then the next day, today. Eventually, when the doctor says to you that you have stage 4 cancer, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say what you said today. God's will be done. God's will be done. So here's a summary of what I'm trying to say. We look at amazement at the faith of Jesus in the garden on the night of his betrayal. And yet we forget that as early as 12 years old, he was cultivating a life that was lived in submission to his father's will. If you want to be the kind of person that finishes, the, finishes well in life, you want to be the kind of person that knows how to say no to temptation, loves your family, do the long haul of following Christ. If you want to be that kind of person, it has to start today. And so I know that the day's coming. If I don't get in an accident suddenly, something's going to tell me that I'm dying. At some point, it's coming. And that means leaving my family. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of things involved with that message. And I know it's coming. If I live long enough and I don't die suddenly, it's coming. And it's going to come for you if you don't live long enough. I mean, if you don't die suddenly and you have your mind, it's coming for you. And when that moment comes for me, I want to say what Jesus said on that night that he was betrayed. Not my will, your will. And I want it to come out of my lips so naturally that I still have joy. I can't become that kind of person if I don't start by saying, today, your will be done. I'm not going to have the willpower to do it. All of a sudden, habits will take over. And so I want to have the right habit in place. Jesus did. And so my challenge to you, and it's a challenge for myself, is go in today and say, this is the day God's given me. I just kind of want to make that the next step. Now, I've been living with this next step for some time now, for several days. And my days have not gone like I've wanted them to go. And I've had to live into this. But man, it's been, it's been working on my heart. Here it is, next step. This is something you and I can do concretely right here. Throughout each day, this come upcoming week, say to yourself this. This is the day the Lord has given me. I have everything I need. Do you know the other option if you don't say that? Life is random. Everything's chaos. No one's in control. If you're a Christian, you can't go there. God's in control. This is the day He's given you. And you have everything you need. Your feelings will maybe take the... Your feelings are going to have to catch up to that. Because you're not going to feel like that all the time. Just like I don't think Jesus felt excited and energetic all the time. But he had trained to say, not my will, but your will be done. So to, to today, like, this is the day the Lord's given me. I don't know. Whatever you got right now, this is the day the Lord gave you. And you have everything you need. 
You know, that's right there in that passage. All that, I think, is right there in that passage. Someone texted me this week and said, there are so many different ways to go on this passage. I'm looking forward to see what you do with this. Don't disappoint. I'm hoping I did a good job. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for the inspiration. Thanks for all that you have done to put this external revelation into our eyes, ears, minds, as it trains us to live into the reality of the good news of the gospel of Christ. All of it to your glory, and so we want to be a people as a church and as individuals who say, today, not my will, but your will. And then tomorrow we're going to say the same thing. And we'll say it again the next day. Holy Spirit, help us, because we are human. We are human and we will struggle. But with your power, we will say, this is the day you've given us. And in it, we have everything we need. So we pray that in the name of him who taught us all these things and brought us salvation, Jesus the Christ.